You are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast. And this week, we are going to be discussing, and briefly, shortly, we will be spoiling for you, The Green Hornet. Now, before we spoil it, I am joined by uh, Christian Muarzny, I think it is. Christian Muarzny. It's it's pronounced Brit, not Brit, Brit. And also Kelly Wand, who I hope has for us a Green Hornet-related tagline this week. Kelly Wand, what do you have for us? Yeah, just a superhero thing. Is Clark Kent a good writer? <laughs> that, that's the tagline? Or are you actually wondering that? Uh, I'm just wondering it. <laughs> oh, okay, here's the tagline. When I see Crossroads is on TV... I'm always bummed if it's not the Britney Spears one, the Ralph Macchio one. Oh, very good. Okay. Does that make me? Never mind. That makes you a fan of uh, Ralph Macchio. That's fine. Gold level uh, aqua boy. Dingus, why don't you tell us a little bit about Green Hornet before we spoil it for people? If you don't know what this Green Hornet thing is, Dingus is going to clue you in, and then we're going to get into spoilers about it. So you have been forewarned. So before we do that, Dingus, what's this Green Hornet deal? What's going on here? All right, I just wanted to let you guys know we're, this week we saw a movie called The Green Hornet. <laughs> Come on, are you serious? Uh, that yes. makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. It's The Green Hornet, uh, and it's a superhero comedy movie directed by Michelle Gondry. And it stars Seth Rogen and Jay Chu, or Chow, Chu. Racist. As uh, guys fighting crime but pretending not to. The film is rated PG-13 for scenes of violent action, language, sensuality, sensual, what? and when? drug content. Well, we'll get into that in a minute, Kelly. When? Once we get into spoilers. Uh, That's right. All right. All right, Dingus. Um Kelly Wand, so having said that, that's all the basic non-spoiler stuff. Kelly Wand, why don't you... Uh, give the advanced. Down. Yeah, give us an advanced version of what Dingus just did. That was Bronze League uh, synopsis. <laughs> JK. <clears throat> oh, you mean a green hornopsis? Rock and roll. <laughs> there is no appropriate response, is there, to that? Um, all right, we'll talk about green hornopsis. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, this fat kid named Britt Eklund, and he gets in trouble with his dad for watching his Asian friend at school karate chop some bullies. See what I did there? Uh, so his dad teaches him a lesson by twisting off an action figure's head and giving him the body to play with, even though just like in RL, the body's the fun part. The head just turns around like in RL. <laughs> and then nothing happens for 30 years, except that the Jewish guy from Inglorious Bastards is this evil guy named Christian Miroski. And his gun has two barrels side by side, so he can shoot stuff around both sides of what he's aiming at, which is way more accurate. And James Franco makes fun of him for not wearing a suit and won't pay him protection money until all his bodyguards are dead. So he agrees to join the syndicate, but Christian Miroski tricks him by blowing up the building with the suitcase and not getting hit by the debris that pelts his limo. So then Britt Eklund has to throw his TV out of his apartment party like Iron Man had, and he also lives in Iron Man's apartment and has Iron Man's garage full of cars, and he takes a girl down there, but instead of banging her in one of the cars, he just sits on all the hoods with her in fast motion. And then he bangs her in his sofa bed, and his dad comes in next morning because his dad has a key because they live together and share the sofa bed, and the dad's mad because his son's rich and just had sex, and all his action figures have heads. So he throws a newspaper in his face, and its headline says City Under Siege, and it shows a building blowing up because that means the city is under siege. 
and Brett Eklund feels bad because he's never seen a newspaper before, and his dad dies from a bee sting, which Reflector found out about by watching on TV news in his car. So Celebrate, he fires everybody, and he has a meeting with his newspaper's editor, Commander Adama, who has a gold <laughs> watch chain because it's 1870. And Bert Eklund's coffee sucks because he fired the guy who made it and I guess rehired someone else to make the coffee later that day. <laughs> so now he rehires the first houseboy, this engine dude named Tonto, although his engine name is Heapum Jism, which is why the coffee tasted so salty the way Seth Beckler's likes it. <sighs> and Tonto shows him it was also good because he used this device he invented called a coffee machine. That he made out of pipes and thermostats. And he shows him some sketches of cars and porn actresses that he drew in this notebook that he left behind when he got fired yesterday. So Breast Clovens tells him to make some cars and guns out of thermostats so they can fight crime together because that coffee's made him insane. And he'll call himself the Green Hornet because that's what killed his dad. Uh, and Tano's new name will just be Tano because he's Mexican. So they go to the newspaper that Brett Eklund owns, and they're hiring the smiling chick named Night and Day as a temp, and Seth Wexler sits on her by telling her she's as old as Wolford Brimley in Cocoon. <laughs> and then she goes, well, I saw Twilight, and then she knows what year something happened that he's never heard of, so he hires her to make his coffee at the newspaper place because it's 1870. And then Brecklins tells Tano that they should go out and find justice, so they put on some masks and cut off the head of his dad's statue and drive to East L.A. and shoot a bunch of Mexican-Americans, whom Tano beats by using red lasers in his brown eyes to make the hood of the car he's sprinting across seem like 12 hoods that he's sprinting across, which is more tactical. So then a cop chases them, so they distract him by making his car blow up and crash into a coffee shop and kill him, because that's the place where Brett Eklund was getting the coffee from after he fired Tano. And then the cops can't figure out who these guys are, even though they leave calling cards everywhere with their email on it, because the cops don't have email yet, because it's 1870. <laughs> and uh, even though they strew their cards all over town, like Burger King merchandise with Green Hornet shit plastered all over it. Uh, nobody ever emails them, except the bad guys when they want to lure them into a trap. And they're being buried alive in their car, but Tano tricks the dirt by firing missiles inside that hurt the dirt, but not them. And they run away from the exploded car they're in uh, and under some trucks and they giggle and they fart. But then... They get into a fight with each other because Cichlins can't fight and because Night and Day likes the red meat, if you know what I'm saying. But Horner wins because Tano can't swim, so Tano quits and tries to write a resume, but he can't because he has no skills except martial arts, coffee-making, weapon design, piano, car weapon design, mask design, gas gun design, costume design, quarters, flirtation, <laughs> newspaper running, uh, Latin, biodigital jazz, uh, Chinese, and his only reference is a dead billionaire everybody loved, so he's fucked. Uh... So the bad guys decide to take care of their hornet problem by killing everyone in L.A. who's wearing green clothes. But unfortunately, it's St. Patrick's Day. Get it? Uh, 
Okay. And this day, this guy, day, <laughs> nine day, this guy named D.A. Scantron, played by a young Charles Grodin, is evil because he wants Seth Beckler's to print false news stories about him as opposed to false news stories about the Green Hornet that the good guys are printing. <laughs> Which he found out about because a guy at the newspaper office handed Seth Beckler's a box marked evidence my dad kept for some reason that would incriminate him later that he found under the paper clips. And he hands it to him and he goes, here's what you're looking for. And then that's that character's role. <laughs> so then <clears throat> Charles Grodin lures Green Hornet to a sushi place. The Green Hornet owns him by taping their conversation on a USB port disguised as a sushi roll so a chase ensues because they have to get the sushi to the newspaper office and use the computer there to download it to the world instead of just escaping and doing it later or using a different computer um like dinguses so they destroy <laughs> the entire office shooting stuff and riding the front half of the car up the glass elevator and then driving around the cubicles and honking the horn <laughs> using turn signals and then they get to the one computer that's not destroyed and they upload a bunch of files but it turns out seth chambers doesn't know how to use technology i can identify and the file numbers we just saw the bar counting down when he put it in the computer we didn't really see those so they kill charles Grodin by driving into him and using ejector seat parachutes and the fireman throws away the usb port in the dead da's mouth because firemen are trained to dispose of evidence at crime scenes in the mouths of public figures who just died wackily <laughs> and no one finds it later either and no one sees these two masked buffoons touch down in their ejector seats on night and day street and she kicks them in the nuts but they reveal their identity so she pepper sprays them but they beg her to be a mastermind so she fools the pigs by acting suspicious and slamming the door in their face and then a suspense-filled week goes by and horn hoagland's making a speech but tano drives through the crowd and kills a bunch of people and pretends to shoot him in the arm and then drives away into a police roadblock and dies while the real Tano's parked in a similar car and makes a U-turn. And then Fred Rogan's bullet wound is infected because it's a week old, but the doctors don't notice. And he makes Commander Adama editor-in-chief of the daily bullshit, even though he already was editor-in-chief. And they put the head back on the statue that's been standing headless all these months at the park. And Seth tells Zorro that their battle with evil's only just begun. And also, now that they found out how his dad really died, he has to change his superhero name to the Silver Syringe of 10 cc's of Yellow Jacket Venom Polymers. And Tano has to change his name to Dan. And uh, then some comic book end credits play, even though this movie was based on a radio show. The end. Very nice, Kelly Wand. Take that! Two short last decaders. Oh. Uh, did you say Fred Rogan? That made me happy. Yeah, see? I'm glad someone gets athletic. <laughs> All right, right. Who's going who's gonna to step up and defend this thing? I'm not. One of oh. you guys has to. Uh, there were 20 minutes where I was kind of liking it, where it was kind of growing on me in the middle, and I liked the Asian guy. In the middle? <laughs> uh, no, just go I go, oh, he's not supposed to be likable. That's the joke. Oh, this is kind of, that's kind of funny. Hey, the main guy is a total douchebag. And then in the last half hour, I go, oh, wait, he's supposed to be likable. <laughs> They're idiots. This movie's dumb. Never mind. Dingus, did you have any 20 minutes that you enjoyed? Like, where, where, uh, where, where are you on this, Dingus? Um, I don't know how many minutes it took, but uh, when I was sitting there with James Franco, I was happy. Yeah, as always. 
Now, are yeah, you talking exactly. about exactly? I could, I, you know, he and I, as I, as I told you guys in an earlier podcast, we've taken a house together, and so, <laughs> so, uh, so all I could keep thinking was, boy, I wish James Franco would come back. Can he come back now? And then there were a few moments where I was really happy I'd played Midnight Club because I was like, oh, I know that street from Midnight Club. Well, and plus you live in Los Angeles, don't you? Oh, there's that. But I don't often go on car chases. And uh-huh. when you uh, when you see a couple of those fast L.A. streets, it really reminded me of Midnight Club. And I just kind of sat up and went, hey, I know that. That winding road's in Midnight Club. Did you notice, Dingus, where they shot the scene where uh, they first ambushed the gangsters when they're coming out of the, the cemetery? Uh, is that where we go to see summer movies? Exactly. That's in front of the Hollywood Cemetery. Kelly Wan, you can't be bothered to join us because you're a jerk. But uh, it's the Hollywood I don't see cemeteries with movies in them. Okay, and see, that, that's what's so great about that is because when you have the actual funeral, his statue is in the middle of some statuesque, huge... Uh, rich person's uh, funeral place, but when we have that scene, he's sitting on Santa Monica Boulevard. Right. We don't. The, the average person doesn't know that, but I enjoyed sunset, saying. Is, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed elitists. I enjoyed seeing that scene and thinking, yeah, that's where we go to watch the the outdoor movies broadcast on the you know that are projected on the side of the mausoleum in the summertime. Uh, right. Right. Sounds more like a fun Earl. I don't know. Uh, all right, so uh, Dingus, you said something good about the movie. You liked the James Franco scene. Uh, Kelly Wan, you briefly enjoyed 20 minutes of it where you thought he was supposed to be unlikable. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little jealous. I actually, I like the James Franco scene, but I, God, what a, what a piece of junk. I mean, this is such a January release. God. I like Jay Chow. I thought he was a funny comic creation. What do you think about that? How stupid am I? Well, now you liked... You, you say you thought he was a funny comic creation in that you liked his role, or you liked the actor? Both. I thought he had funny little lines, and he seemed like he thought the whole movie was dumb. And I thought, they're, oh, they're riffing, because he's the Bruce Lee who's like, smart and cool, and the white guy's a big dumb shit. But then, um, I don't know, but Seth Rogen wrote himself that way. Like, you'd think he would, but they made him lose weight for it, so maybe he was mad and dizzy from losing weight, so it made his writing shittier. Well, I, this is this isn't just Seth Rogen. This is Seth Rogen and a fellow named Evan Goldberg, who are the writers of Superbad and Pineapple Express, oh. which I love. And I, I love, love those. I love those too. But both of those movies, Pineapple Express, I, I would argue a lot of it has to do with David Gordon Green bringing his sensibilities to it. But Superbad, if you remember, has great stuff with Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill, but then veers off into these weird like Reno 911 wacky cop sequences, which I felt mm-hmm. didn't really work. Uh, and this movie was that entire bit of Superbad, the least successful part of Superbad, fleshed out into a full-length movie uh, that, that sort of was, I thought they were trying to make it play like Pineapple Express buddy movie kind of thing. I mean, I could see their writing sensibilities at work, and I just thought it just didn't belong here. Uh, it just didn't seem to fit at all. I mean, on one hand, here's a superhero movie that I think it's trying to do some callbacks to like an older time, you know, when 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 dudes had manservants and mm. uh, and the 1990s 
And when when print, by the way, like like the way that print is portrayed in this movie is so incredibly quaint. <laughs> I, know. I know it's so great because they're, everybody's so concerned. Is this newspaper going to slant things when all of television isn't? I mean, right. this guy is so worried about the Sentinel. How are they going to deal with it when when television doesn't could give a fuck? They're just yeah. I, I laughed out loud. I was the only one in my theater. I laughed out loud when the when when he's having the, the scene with the DA, and he's like, "Wait a minute! You want me to slant the news to help you win an election?" Right. <laughs> I'm like, "Well, everyone else is doing it. I don't know why you're right. such, yeah. not such a big deal for you, Seth Rogen. Good lord, when did you get these journalists? He could have delivered that line like he got your joke, and he's making fun of it, but he didn't. Right. Uh, well, and that's so that's what I think the problem is, is uh, Rogan and Goldberg wanted to do just another buddy movie. And for whatever reason, they shoehorn it into some old superhero thing that Kelly Wan, you mentioned, is from a radio serial. Uh, and for whatever reason, they got Michelle Gondry to direct it. I just I, this is just yeah. so, so ill fitting all around. And even poor Christopher Waltz. Uh, you know, he seemed fairly game about some of the stuff they were having him do, but it was just such a poor fit. I mean, so many. Just and Cameron. He says Cameron Diaz. Yeah. And Edward James Olmos. It's I don't get it. I and don't know poor Edward think. Furlong. Oh, that guy. I feel terrible for him. It <laughs> felt like too. he actually stumbled in from a meth lab. Yeah. I mean, oh, oh God. I just I, I oh, right. almost physically got sick. It, it feels like everybody's stumbling in from another movie. When Cameron Diaz shows up, which I didn't expect, I thought, oh, she just she just came over from night and day. Oh, good. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. to brighten my day up. But but nothing interesting happens with her. I was hoping uh, against hope that maybe she'll end up with Cato, and that'll be sort of this weird yes. version. Right. That'll be funny. No, that's clever. And then they ditch it. But, yeah, we can't let that happen. Right. Uh, yeah, I hit that too. That made me see. That was like, oh, really? You're not even gonna? Oh, you fucking. And they also they they completely did the same thing with their villain that they tried to do with. Uh, oh, not Gary Trudeau. Who's the villain in Pineapple Express? Gary uh, Rats. I love that guy. What's his name? Craig Robinson. No, uh, Gary. Hey, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a finely quaffed fellow. Cole. He's what is his name? Gary Cole. Yeah. 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 Robinson. Thank you. Exactly. Good. Right. Right. So it's, it's almost common, but. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Not. they tried to they they did some similar things like with uh, with Christopher Waltz being a, a villain, like the little bit where his he he references that the gas mask is fogging up and he gets his fingers in there and rubs it out <laughs> like a little gag. Like, like that kind of stuff is funny and it could work if you if you play with it, I, I, I think, or if it, if it fits in the movie better. Uh, but there was stuff like that. I seem to recall with Gary Cole as the villain in Pineapple Express. Um so, yeah. Pineapple Express was always it was funny the whole way, wasn't it? It was. Do I misremember that movie because I was too big at the time. Pineapple Express is, is Pineapple Express has a consistent tone throughout, and it works beautifully, right. unlike Superbad, and certainly unlike Green Hornet. Uh, and again, that's why I credit. I mean, I think David Gordon Green really gets that kind of humor. And, and you know what, Kelly Wand? Like, I don't, I don't know if you've seen Foot Fist Way and Eastbound and Down. But David Gordon Green is very involved in those as well. Uh, Eastbound Down's awesome. It is. He, he works with a fellow named Jody Hill, and, and of course Danny McBride is a big part of that. Danny yeah. McBride also in Pineapple Express. Why wasn't he in this? He could have been the bad guy. No offense, Christopher Walls. But. I, I know, like that would have been a, a more interesting decision. Because the I, action I think, in Pineapple Express is good, if I remember right. Is, and the action yeah. in this was totally anemic. It was incompetent. The the action, the chase scenes. 
just incompetently filmed. And Michelle no, Gondry is somebody I really like. No sense of space. Spatial awareness, very important for action scenes. James Cameron gets it much as we... You know, if, in that first... <laughs> That first vigilante scene where he's like, oh, this looks ominous, and then he decides, because we've seen earlier, he likes to fight bullies. He doesn't like to do anything else in his life, but he likes to do this. Um, mm-hmm. That that little bit of Cato's video game vision, I kind of felt like, okay, this is another chance for you to go somewhere new with the movie. Um, but apart from that, any chase scene, those other action scenes, the the car driving on the freeway, I, I was just, this is... You know, barely. This is not even a smidge above Michael Bay. I don't know what the hell you're filming. Yeah, <laughs> I actually, I, I since I didn't know the backstory, I don't know a lot of. So Kelly Wan, this was a radio drama, but it's also a comic book too, isn't it? Like it was adapted into a comic book, right? Probably. Okay, but it's there's so many different green heroes. I know it's very confusing. Who can keep track of it all, really? Uh, but but I, I since I don't know any of the backstory, I at one point thought, oh, Kato's a robot. Like I thought there was going to be some weird thing because that to me says he's a Terminator. You know, when they mm. when they do that little vision thing, I was like, right. okay, it's going to be some weird mystical thing, and right. instead he just kind of slows time, which for whatever reason, like Sherlock Holmes does. Other genius types, and for whatever reason, Seth Rogen gets to do it in in the end of the movie. Yeah. Oh, right. it's a virus. That's right. With a different color. Laser. Thanks, James Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you guys noticed, Cato drinks uh, white wine with ice in it. Oh, yeah. that, that's because... What a racist. Well, Cameron Diaz, Lenore, she does it. And, and in their cool date, where there was a little bit of heat when they're playing piano together, she had the white wine with ice. And then in a later scene, she has the white wine with ice. She likes the white meat. What? Uh, I, 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 did en- I did enjoy this, the fact that, you know, one of the few nice things I can say about the movie, I enjoyed the fact that it didn't give in to the temptation to have her fall for either of these idiots. <laughs> I liked the yeah. fact that, that he did not get the kiss. Uh, I, 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 I do like that. It, it, she's not going to fall for Cato. I like that she doesn't fall for either one of them. Right. Yeah. She's too well, good for those guys. But I was hoping that if if she's not going to fall for Cato, and I I kind of like the idea of 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 um, Seth Rogen Brit losing out. If she's not, I would have wished that the two of them would have would have screwed with him on that. Would have kept flirting. Would have kept you know kept like egging him on on that. And 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 they didn't do that because I thought there was a little bit of chemistry, or could have been some chemistry there. And now, Kelly, one you mentioned liking the part of, of Cato, and I just, I, again, it seemed to me like they were. It was a throwback to this time when when dudes had manservants. Yeah, and, but I like that performance. I like the the guy. He was funny. He was fine, but I really didn't get much from what he was doing because I don't think there was much given to him. So I, I he was the only guy who was making me laugh more times than not when he spoke. Okay. In this movie, Seth Rogen was like, and I, I don't know. It's like Seth Rogen didn't play a funny because Robert Downey Jr. played a hilarious dissolute until he sobered up in the Iron Man movie. <laughs> but Seth Rogen was like a douchebag. Like he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't charming. He was just an obnoxious turd. But and he was as, in shape. <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense for the character he's no, playing. No, it doesn't. Because no, why does no why sense. is he motivated all of a sudden now? He should have looked like Pee Wee Herman's villain, the fat guy in the pool. Well, that and I think too, him. Dingus, that's an that's an important question because these sort of even if the movie doesn't take itself very seriously, these are its chosen dramatic beats. 
and the movie just glosses over them. It's just like, okay, now we're going to randomly have him care about justice. Okay, now he's going to randomly care about you know, the integrity of his newspaper. Like, this script that they wrote, it's just a throwaway buddy script, and they're the dramatic beats they put in there, they do nothing with those. Yeah. Uh, they could have done a lot with Cato hating him. Like, that should have been... That's my vote for the story meeting I wasn't invited to. And instead, all they did was it was it's just going to be like the the buddy scene with a little bit of tension between them for who who's the sidekick. And I, <sighs> yeah. And look who wins the douchebag white guy. <laughs> uh, because and, by, when, when you when you get notes back, it's like you're getting notes back from rich studio executives, and they're like, "Yo, what, he's not unsympathetic." He's fine. Like, it's like that. Like, they're all like that guy. No offense. Well, I can't figure out what the hell we're supposed to feel about him. In that initial interview with Lenore, with uh, Cameron Diaz, when he's doing that whole, all right, tell me about yourself, go. I just wanted to punch him in the face. And and all I could think of, and I didn't know this until the very end, you know, uh, at the very end you see, oh, it's written by Seth Rogen, oh, it's executive produced by Seth Rogen, and is it Evan Goldberg? Uh, I, di- I didn't realize all of that going in because I'm fairly ignorant when I go into most films, and it and it so it sort of started to pile vanity upon vanity, and I started to feel like, well, what the hell are you doing in that scene, and and what the hell is this character about? It just feels like you want to have a, a party scene where you're shooting a fire extinguisher off, and then you want to have a party scene where you're running through a, a garage of expensive cars and kissing a hot girl. And all of yeah. these things have nothing to do with a character who's eventually going to be caring about justice all of a sudden. And right. None of that makes any sense. None of it, none of it bears out. And no sense of irony, like no even teasing it. Like, we know it's dumb. That's the joke. Like... They played it like we've never seen a superhero movie before. Oh, his dad died. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, he has to come up with a name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what if they recognize him? They better wear masks. Dude, oh, I hope they use the car for something. Wouldn't that be cool if the car shot bullets? <laughs> well, at least it's got good coffee porn. Oh, it so had great coffee porn. Yeah, that, that was nice. Although I noticed that they probably had to use a stunt double to do that little leaf effect. Like, as soon as like they cut they to the... As soon as they cut to the leaf effect, it's just uh, it's just a, a close-up. Yeah, <laughs> it is the best effect in the movie too, and I think it's like a real. Wow, I think you're right, Kelly Wand. Ooh, you yeah. might be right. That's yeah. cool. I can well, see why you want that back. Well, you know, you know, you say that, Kelly Wand, but okay. So there were there were four times where I made a note that I was like, okay, this is a touch of Michelle Gondry. This is where I see yeah. him as a director. And there were there were only four times. I wish there had been more. I might be missing some. Uh, one of them is the TV when when they announce that uh, that his dad has been killed by a bee sting. There's a very brief graphic where a cartoon bee comes over to it. It's obviously like a computer graphic. A cartoon bee comes over, lands on a neck, stings it, and flies away. That I thought was very Michelle Gondry. The early bit with the toy superhero where he's holding it out the window and playing with it. You guys haven't seen Science of Sleep, but but Michelle Gondry like I, I think back to the bit in uh, um um. What's the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where uh, Jim Carrey is playing with the kids uh, and they beat up, they beat him up. You know, I think Michelle Gondry has this appreciation for for kids play, and and so when you see the little toy superhero, I felt like okay, that's kind of a 
Michelle Gondry touch. The bright red flowers as far as being a, a, a graphic choice and specifically how they come into play during that uh, realization scene where he apparently spaces out for five minutes. Because, <laughs> again, like, is he, a, is, he a, is he ignorant? Is he smart? Is he a good fighter? Is he a crappy fighter? That's another thing. The movie doesn't make a choice on either of these. It, it wants to have it all ways. So, but during that exposition scene where he is understanding what's going on, that seemed very Michelle Gondry sort of music video uh, stylistic uh, cho- choices were made that were interesting with the flowers. I liked some of that. But those are like the only times where I felt they actually got anything out of Michelle Gondry that had any point of view. Justified. Yeah, yeah. Did I miss anything? Did you guys think of any other good Michelle Gondry touches? Well, B doesn't sting his dad. So that's a lie, right? Well, right, but there's a weird there, there's a weird news graphic, like when the news is announcing it. Oh, okay. It's a graphic of a bee floating over to a neck, stinging it, and then flying away. It, it's just he did a couple of playful things with the the news stuff in the background. I don't know if you guys watched that, but I was so bored. Uh, <laughs> you watch the news, the characters. Are <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, not even that they're watching. There was at one point a big old bank of like like nine screens behind him. And I was noticing what news stories they were broadcasting on, on those. Uh, How are your stocks doing on the news <laughs> in Green Hornet? Uh, there was a terrible train. Biotech stocks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and even, too, it's funny, Kelly, when you mentioned the newspaper where it said the you know city under siege. It wasn't a picture of a blown-up building. Do you remember what it was? I thought it was a fiery diner. It was a picture of a tree on fire. Right. <laughs> Oh really? Oh, that's pretty funny. It is funny, and I don't know that I I, I don't know that they realize that. Like but, it. but yeah, it, it See, was. That's, are we being had? Like, is it a, a brilliant movie, and we're stupid for not? Like, well, the thing is, no, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, the I one little was, moment I thought of him, and this is now that I think about it, it's pretty much a standard fade. It's it's this overhead shot of the mansion that fades into a perfect shot of the casket, and oh, yeah. that. That, that transmogrifies into the the, uh, the cemetery scene. I thought, oh, okay. okay. His mansion is a tomb. Yeah, I kept thinking, maybe we're going to go, and then never would happen. Right. Uh, just a, a geometrical coincidence. Yeah, really. But I think the, I, you know, I think the the main guy, unfortunately, uh, sinks the movie. I really do. Yeah. I, I, I normally no, I have a high threshold for Seth Rogen tolerance, and normally even really enjoy him. I loved him in Funny People, and I, I, I like when he's self-deprecating. And the movie seemed to sometimes do that, but he was just so grating here, wasn't he? But was he supposed to be? I mean, I just can't. I just—it's hard for me to believe that the Seth Rogen we all know and love wouldn't do that on purpose. Is he—is he too high to know how annoying he is like me? Unfortunately, I think so uh, because. You know, I watched. Uh, I don't know what it is. I guess the. I'm no, I'm no fan of of late night uh, talk shows. I really am not. Leno. But out of curiosity, I watched the first Conan, and, and his first guest was Seth Rogen. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I saw that too. And uh, he's was terrible it? as a guest. He does that. Yeah. He does that sort of. He's very studious. Well, he just does his self aware. Like he laughs at all of his own jokes, and it's a very sort mm. of pot pot laugh and it's fine but it's just amusing and and you get the sense that he's just running around laughing at himself and getting to do shit and and he's it's, gone Catherine Heigl ironically on us yeah well, kind of it's just I, I think I think he's got such talent as a writer um, and as an actor but not in this part and I wish he would have seen that and and put somebody else there even James Franco although I don't know that I, I know you can't do that because he already plays another green 
character. Uh, oh, that's funny. What green character? Better. Wait, wait, wait. What green character is he? Oh, oh, right, right. You know, I, you guys and your superhero stuff. Tom right? is DC. No, it's, it's it's the Green Goblin in Spider Man. Willem Dafoe. What? See, I know this stuff. <laughs> but you're right, Dingus. I mean, it really does take someone like James Franco here. Like Seth Rogen is fine doing what he does, but this is not the place for for someone doing what Seth Rogen does. Yeah. Uh, it could have been, but he didn't it, even do what Seth Rogen does. But I just, I just don't get what he's going for. Either he lacks motivation for the first 30 years of his life, and then if that's who that character is, then at some point he walks away. But but instead, this movie has him calling Cato a, a chicken and a bitch, and Cato walks away, who's the one guy with motivation in the entire film, and... And so Seth Rogen, this character who has never had motivation for his entire life, is not going to turn away in this moment of truth. I, I think that the, this character, the, ba- the way you built him, he's the one who walks away. But, I, I, but mm-hmm. applying and that logic is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same, yeah. There's, and, and like Ding is talking about no logic, and, and Kelly won that fight. There's no logic in that fight. Cato is a robot who can isolate with a laser your solar plexus right. or whatever, and he can get punched by, by a schlub like Seth Rogen. No, you've, yeah. not, you've already established in the movie how that fight should go, and they're just going to change it because they want to do a cute little kind of extended buddy wrestling scene. Uh, but, like you, an Iron Man. but you know how Two. that fight ends, right? Cato not being able to swim. He can't swim. Yeah. That's the, he really. Uh, he can, yeah. Well, that's he's 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 all the things he knows. But he well, that's knows. why Kelly won because he's spent all of his life studying those other things he knows. He never got around to learning to swim. You see, what the his kryptonite? <laughs> what the hell was that? Like it's unbreakable. <laughs> it's okay because I like the characters. So I'm not racist. <laughs> Uh, I, I think we are going to have Tom Wilkinson typecast as the guy who gets killed with a syringe from now on, by the way. <laughs> what did Wendy say? Uh, so, yeah, so, Dingus, did you did you drag your poor wife to this movie? She insisted, yes. Yeah, sure. And and how did that go over? What, what, um, her three, she has the three-word review. Okay. Here's her three-word review. Fun and stupid. <laughs> I agree with one of those words. <laughs> She'd half like me. <laughs> I was in an audience full of kids, by the way, and uh, some of they were actually, they were remarkably well behaved. I was very proud of them. But, uh, and however, at the end, and and because I was so bored with this stupid thing, I was kind of listening for the audience, and the kids seemed to be pretty quiet. And I was like, wow, even the kids in this movie hate. They're it. dead. That's the twist. Uh, and <laughs> when it got to the end. Uh, when the the DA is is being pushed along the front of the car outside, and then the car drives outside the skyscraper, one of the kids behind me goes ejection seat. <laughs> uh, they were paying close if, enough. They were paying close enough attention that, that they liked that. But then or it was so obvious to them. I didn't think of it. I, I guess I had paid enough attention. But but here's the kicker though. So the movie goes on for another four hours or however long it goes from that point, <laughs> and we get to. To Cato's escape, where he pulls the black beauty, uh, the car, into the parking spot, and it turns white, and the cops zip by, mm-hmm. my audience applauded at that. Racist. <laughs> it was the most random thing at the little, the yeah. little camouflage paint. All the kids in my audience applauded. They loved that. It'd be that. awesome if we got that car, man. I don't. I guess so. I don't know why they liked that. But uh, the cop car is black and white. 
see. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the editing is so incompetent that when you get to that point, it's... Yeah, I didn't get that. That's what Tom just explained. Oh, wait, 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 isn't that what happened? No, that's I think exactly right. what happened. I mean, it's digitized yellow paint, and you see that sort of digitized thing. But when they... It's the same fucking car, though. So why would that... When they go, wait... Because, no. no, you see cars like that all the time. That's a very common model. I don't oh, know if you guys... Yeah. I even got one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cruise the down. All right, let's let's briefly talk about this 3D. How did it work as a 3D movie? Dingus, as our resident 3D fan, you can't get enough mm-hmm. of the stuff. How did you think this one held up as a 3D movie? I think the the sushi uh, drive were really worked well in 3D. <laughs> Kelly Wand, were you a fan of the 3D? No. Did you see it in 3D? Yeah. Okay. Ding is he saw it in 3D too, right? You and your wife sat there with your glasses on. No. You didn't see it in 3D. No, of course not. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous oh. too. You dick. Sure. How dare you not warn us that there was no 3D in this movie at all? Ever. Well, you know, we we did. I, I can't abide it, and and since we were going on a date, my wife can't stand it either, so we didn't bother. And when she went and she gave the ticket to the ticket taker. The ticket taker said, I hear the 3D is really great in this. And, and oh, mm-hmm. So at least you guys are going to see some great 3D. And my wife said, uh, yeah, we're not going to see the 3D. Uh, I don't really like that because of the glasses. Oh. That's for me. Pug, Would you go ahead and get that? that Kelly one? <laughs> or... oh. Just talk around me. And the, and the ticket taker said, yeah, I hate those glasses too. They always feel like you're falling off your face. Hmm. Been on that day. <laughs> no one is here right now. Please take our 3D call. So no, uh, we didn't see it, and you know it, it looked fine. But I, I don't. I didn't see anything in it that would have been worthwhile seeing it in 3D. Uh, Kato's robot vision. I mean, oh. not worthwhile in 3D, but they. You could tell. I think that was something they put in there partly to be 3D. Uh, and did you it, guys see the Thor trailer in 3D? Uh, yeah. Yes. I forgot if that uh-huh. was... Yeah, yeah, all my trailers were in 3D, so yeah, I saw the Thor one. Okay, go back speaking to what you're saying. Speaking of the Thor trailer, by the way, Kelly Wand, and actually, Dingus, you would know this, I once this movie was over, I watched a little bit of the comic book credits, and I was out of there. I didn't want to stick around. Oh, yeah, I waited for an Easter egg. I go, yeah. oh, superhero movie. So what nope. do you get? No? <laughs> they didn't even do that? No. no, and everyone besides me stayed, too, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> they forgot it's only the Marvel movies oh that's oh, not I, a, I had a woman who was so mad at the end because of that because she there, didn't get no, a button right uh, there was this woman in my theater who she was the loudest snorting laugher when uh, when seth rogan asks uh, did you put this diaper right this diaper on me she snorted four or five times in the la- it sounded like a comic book snort and then when we got to the very end of the credits she went oh boo boo to you too <laughs> wow <laughs> And then Wait, booed you too? Yeah, she was. It was as if she knew Seth Rogen. The movie booed her. And as she wa- as she walked out, she was talking to her her boyfriend or whoever, her date, oh. as if she knew Seth Rogen and saying, "Oh, you know, I oh I forgive him. You know, I, I I love that he kept saying, let's roll. It was just oh yeah, it's a nine eleven. But she was really mad that there wasn't a button. Button. Uh, Boo to you too. How did it do this weekend, by the way? Will there be a Greenpoint too? Do we know? We don't know. I, I thought Green Lantern is Green Hornet too. 
Wait. So I guess Green Lantern is our next hope for a non-horrible uh, green-themed superhero. Why is that going to be non-horrible? I don't want to ever see another superhero movie again. I didn't say it's, it's not going to be. I didn't say it's going to be non-horrible. I said it's our next hope for one. Uh, Green Hornet. Okay, predict what verb goes into this headline. Green Hornet blanks to box office top. Buzzes. Yeah, good, Tom. You could write headlines. Oh, I live in L.A. That's part of living in L.A. is that that language, you, you sort of assimilate it through osmosis. That's industry talk. Uh, that one was too easy. Right, how much did it make? Oh, I don't know. No, all right. 34 million. Are you serious? Yeah. That's kind of good. Wait, 40. Yeah. But then they go, yeah, we were hoping for more. You know what? It's freaking 3D, though. It, it's good, but it kind of cheats because the tickets are twice as expensive. Uh, all right. That's the whole point of it. So maybe I'm not convinced they're even in 3D. They just give you glasses, and, and they shoot it deliberately out of focus and go, yeah, see, look, it's awesome. Well, at this point, like, so Dingus, you didn't see it in 3D. But all you missed is a lot of times they would put in effects of, like, broken glass or the little uh, bits of debris from the exploding nightclub in the floor. Bottle caps. Bottle, bottle caps. Oh, the there. bottle caps. That's why those were there. Ah, you missed the bottle cap. No, I watched, I watched those fly by and it went, that's kind of neat, but why, why are we doing that? And it's 3D. Oh, it sets up the next time when he does that and he never does it ever. <laughs> that's not a skill that really comes in handy later in the No, movie. he never uses slow motion bottle cap. This had been a well-written movie. There would have been a point later on where they're captured, they're about to be killed, and Christopher Waltz says, do you have any last requests? And Cato says, can I have a beer? And Christopher Waltz gives him the beer and he snaps the bottle cap off and kills Christopher Waltz with it. That's some good writing right there. Now who's scary? White <laughs> man. Oh, and poor Christopher Waltz having to do his, like, shtick about, you know, coming up with a, a line. That's, oh. Like, right. oh, that was just so, I was so embarrassed for the Can war. you parse that for me? Because I, I listen so hard every time. The last thing you see is my face or my red and the red and the red. So whether it's the color of my mask or your own blood, red shall be the last color you see. Okay, thank you. But see, and I think that's, maybe that could be... Haha, uh-huh, Tom remembered that. <laughs> that's <laughs> good. Yeah. yeah, Tom liked it. Well, okay, so here's another thing. The scene, and this is just so incompetent to me, the scene where he's on the roof of the building, yeah. and he's looking out over the city, and the henchmen come up, <laughs> I, don't, I forget what they're up there for, to see if he's ready to leave or whatever, and his main henchman, who's lost an eye, comes up to him. I'm like, okay, he's going to throw him off the edge of the building. Mm-hmm. They totally set that up, and I don't even think they knew they set it up. I mean, that he just shoots him. Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. As soon as you see it, that's cinematic language for somebody getting thrown off the roof. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you even have the, the requisite, I'm going to tell you a speech and then kill you, and nobody else is going to hear this speech thing. All right. But he doesn't bother to throw him. I'm going to call my boss's idea dumb, even though he shoots people on no pretext. Not, and not just that, Kelly Wan, not I'm going to call it dumb. I'm going to sneer and say, yeah. that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard. That's Only idiot that would work for you. <laughs> and not come armed to the roof. Like, no reservations. And stand up here. No reservations right. about criticizing his boss. That's the line he's going to yeah. say. Oh. After we've seen them be craven, like when he shoots another guy, and they're right. like, hey, boss, your shoot's awesome. Yeah, pinstripe, dude. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Like you. <sighs> All right, well, so there was that. Green Hornet. Uh, Wait, yeah. so the masks were bulletproof, but their eyes weren't bulletproof. Aha. Uh-huh. Kelly, want to say something? So, okay, here's another thing. I don't, I don't want to get too locker room here, but 
I think Cameron Diaz sometimes looks a little freaky. I think she looks really good these days. Like, I thought she looked really good in this. And, uh, I hope there are no women listening. But I was, I kind of, my ears perked up a little bit when they go to visit her and she's wearing that, like, skimpy, like, nighttime clothes. Yeah? Am I crazy? I'd hit that anagram grandma. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty to three, when I'm caught in between, counting one, two, three, beat upon that three, getting down with three, everybody. I wasn't just saying that to queue up a three by three thing. Oh, no, were. no. I really thought she looked great. All right, guys. No, I thought she looked great, too. That you know, I yeah. really liked her in Night and Day, and when she showed up, I had no idea she was going to show up, and neither did my wife, and we both went, oh! Yeah. Oh, it's that girl! Who to her, too? Her being... Dingus, Dingus, what do you got for us? Oh, uh, yeah, remember? All right, uh, these are your top three favorite best meal scenes in a movie. Hmm. Deja vu. Now, I'll be going first uh, because I'm introducing next week's 3x3. Racist. So what I tried to do with these and was not successful. Also, for those of you listening, we we did this last week with each other. So there are... To reconstruct the conversation. (laughs) To reconstruct the conversation. It makes it sound like we're just thinking of these things. And any surprise you hear in our voices about anybody else's pick... That that those that's us acting. That's us pretending we didn't. I changed my whole list. Just to you didn't. I'll bet you didn't. Uh, no. So here's what I tried to do with my three by three. Uh, lots of meal scenes in movies, but a lot of times I think that's just because that's it's something that's easy to give actors to do to force them to sit down and look at each other, uh, and they can have something to do with their hands. It's just an easy common activity. Everybody understands it. So what I, I tried to do for for my what I tried to do for my 3x3, I think of scenes where the meal was somehow more important than just business. Uh, for the most part, I failed. But my number three, uh, I, I like this one because the meal doesn't even really get eaten. My number three is in Pan's Labyrinth when uh, the girl is tempted. And I can't remember. What's the girl's name in Pan's Labyrinth? Pan? <laughs> Pam. Abby. Anyway, she goes down uh, into this sort of fairy world, and she's tempted by this great meal, and it's it's Guillermo del Toro's lovely, lovely production design, and also a really fantastic creature design with that fella who has uh, eyeballs on his hands and the way he holds them up in front of his, his eyeless face where his eyes would normally be. So I love the visuals in that scene. It's a great Ophelia. meal. It, it, ah, very good, Kelly. Oh, you looked it yeah. up. <laughs> but yeah, no, I didn't. No, I know five Ophelias. <laughs> uh, and I love the fact how it touches into this fairy tale idea of temptation uh, and how it also shows that she's a little rebellious. She eats a grape. She doesn't eat the whole meal. She's told not to eat it, but she still uh, gives in to temptation just a little bit and has that grape. So that's my number three is the meal from Pam's Labyrinth. What do you guys think of that? Hey, you never hey heard Tom, that? if she was in Charlie and Chocolate Factory, she'd be dead now. Because <laughs> she would have eaten an everlasting gobstopper. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thanks for ruining my awesome joke. Wait, wait a minute. That's no. It's where Veruca Salt uh, gives in to temptation and eats. Wait, isn't it? Didn't I, I don't know much about music. I thought it's Augustus Glue. He's the first eater. They well, all actually, eat. All they all do. You're right. I didn't even think of that. Well, Mike TV doesn't. He gets a laser shot at him because that's more fun to him than eating. 
But do all the kids, they all give in to some temptation? Charlie drinks. About He's going to be a drinker someday. <laughs> so he gets off scot-free because drinking's okay in the magical world. But that is that standard, like, fairy tale stuff, like the child tempted by a meal. Yeah. Is the child instantly, does she give in to temptation instantly in every fairy tale, like she does in the movie? She does Pants give in What are you talking she about? She takes two seconds. She goes, well, someone just told me not to eat any of this, but oh, I just got to have a grape. I'm so hungry. Oh, it's been ten minutes since I ate. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's it just says something about uh, children being sort of naturally rebellious. Uh, well, wait. Which is the which is the girl who who eats the um, the gum that's like a meal and turns into a blueberry? Is that Veruca Salt? That's Violet Beauregard. Violet, thank you. Yeah, because I she think she had a crush on the Violet. Charlie actor, and the Veruca Salt girl had a crush on him too. So they fought with Charlie behind the scenes. Is this on the commentary track, Kelly One? <laughs> Uh, I think I read it in People magazine when I was baked. <laughs> All right, anyway, so that's, oh, that's, that's why they were weird on the boat. Tell me what is face. your what is your number three favorite meal scene in a movie? Now that you oh, changed my, all your answers so that we won't know them. Okay, my number three is um. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna change it. I'm gonna say <laughs> you probably are because you. I don't think you make lists. You just like you just write out a whole bunch of them and then pick from them as we're talking. <laughs> Well, I can do that. That's a that's allowed. I know. That's that's a viable. That's the same kind of creative liberties Oliver Stone took when he wrote Green Hornet. I mean JFK. Anyway, JFK. Green Hornet. Green Hornet of the nineties. Oh, but getting back to the topic, uh, my number three this week instead of last week is my dinner with Andre. Oh, oh I do remember that. What? <laughs> You know that movie, My Dinner with Andre, the whole movie. Wait, wait, what's the what's the meal in that? Oh, it's dinner. <laughs> and uh, Dingus, have you seen My My Dinner with Andre? No, I probably should have done that since we went through this already. You had an extra week to see it and not care. I've seen I've seen your brunch with him, but I haven't seen your dinner with him. Breakfast with Lassie. Did you see that? No, I saw I saw Tiffany, but not Lassie. Okay, the first half of my dinner with Andre is Andre talking about metaphysics and trances he's been in and monks. And then the second half is Wally Sean telling him he's totally baked and everything he said's dumb. And his electric blanket's awesome and stop making fun of it. And then they leave. And you you are a proponent of my dinner with Andre. Because isn't it kind of a punchline about... Like a boring movie with no action in it, right? Like, that's how My Dinner with Andre is known, yes? It's not boring, but it's a cool dinner. It's like, if you had this dinner, or if you were at, well, you're at the table with them, just staring at them. That's how I see it. Because the camera, you're the camera, so it's your dinner with Andre. And I forget what you told us. Is it all one meal? It's just two dudes for 90 minutes, yeah. forever long. It's all one meal. It's not like four weddings and a funeral where it's like different meals. No. It's all one meal. It's two playwrights, and then at the end, oh, I don't want to spoil what they. And they actually are eating like throughout it. It's like you know, it starts yeah. with them coming in, sitting down. They order their their drinks, their food, all of this. Like it's like, is it real time? It's like a real time meal. Yeah, and their waiter is like old and doesn't react to the camera, and seems like, who are these queers sitting in here talking about theater? The whole movie. They don't react to the camera, do they? It's not like no. A, oh, okay, okay. And it's about cannibalism, right? 
A little bit. Cannibalism's covered. <laughs> it's swimming to Cambodia, but as a duet. So you say that, and, and if I were to think of like wanting to watch a boring movie with no action, I'd be oh, trying to watch a Spalding Gray monologue. They had Wally Shawn and Andre Gregory talking to each other. That's no, just, you'll like it. It's okay. I'm underselling it. I'm being dumb. I have to say, I have to just recommend my dinner with Andre dumbly, uh, goofy, so Michelle Williams can dance to it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. Hey, did you see that? I didn't know. I didn't understand. Saw that. Uh, you suck. Mm. Well, Spoiler. it was a type blue Valentine reference, but I didn't understand the Michelle Williams connection. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's the leap you got stuck on. Understandable. Um, What's that have to do with my dinner with Andre? Nothing. My dinner with Andre has no girls in it, so it's not like Blue Valentine, and that's my point. So it's more like Glengarry Glen Ross. Also no women. It's like it's like having dinner with your crunchy friend and listening to him patiently and interestedly for 45 minutes and then going, all right, you know what? I can't take this shit. <laughs> and you go off on him. And then, and then he's all, no, nah, I don't know. And then you guys leave. And you take the bus home to tell your wife what you learned and ate. Huh. There's no leftovers. They don't have carry-out bags, take-home bags, doggy bags. <laughs> I forgot what words mean. It's been an endless podcast. All right, so Kelly Wan's number three is My Dinner with Andre, your favorite meal scene, and it's not just a scene. You, you managed to pull out a whole movie, Kelly Wan. Well done. It's, it's a scene and a movie, just as Star Wars Episode Two is a prequel and a scene. I'm not even going there. I think it's what is your number three favorite <laughs> meal scene in a movie? All right, um, as I... As I think I talked about, um, there were a couple of movies that really inspired this list a, a few weeks ago. Uh, as, as you fellows may remember, at the end of the year last year, we were in a frenzy to see a lot of films all at once to get ready for our lists, to make our top uh, 10 of 2010 lists. And so uh, I saw a number of films, and a couple of those films that didn't wind up on my list, but I think did wind up on Tom's list, uh, made me think about how forcing actors or characters uh, to sit down at a table and either host a meal or have a meal together changes the way they interact with the other people at the table. And how that is specific to to what is happening in those relationships. Having a meal together changes uh, the way I view another character. It changes the way I view another person. It changes my expectations of those persons. And so that's that's why I picked this, because there was a, a couple of films, and and um, because I, I don't know if you guys are going to change up. I, I'm not sure about that. I'm not going to bring up the, the film that really inspired this. But my number three is a film that uh, did wind up on Tom's list, but not on mine. But I really liked, nonetheless, called The Kids Are All Right. And... Um, there's there's a couple of meal scenes in this. Uh, the the one I'm talking about though is the the first time uh, we get um, Mark Ruffalo's character in to meet the mothers, and it just has this wonderful family dynamic going on, and it taught me so many things as a as a parent. You know, I've, I've only got a six year old, but you know, I, I'm thinking forward to when he's a teenager and and. We have somebody he's dating over, and, and we meet that person for the first time. And this is not somebody 
anybody's dating, but it's it's somebody that the the parents at the table, the, the hosts at this meal, are judging themselves against. And I never thought of that dynamic of having somebody in your home and and meeting them for the first time that your kids really like and feeling like you as a parent, you as a couple, have to evaluate yourselves against. And when you're sitting at a meal, it's such an intimate thing, especially when you have somebody into your home as a host and you're sharing a bottle of wine that that person has brought and you're and you're serving food to them, and Mark Ruffalo to sort of, and not add insult to injury, but to heighten this, is a professional chef. Um, there are so many things that go on t- with you as a host in that situation that I was just, my, my head was spinning watching the scene, because there's so much going on, and these actors handle it so well. Uh, so th- this was my number three. So you know what, so one of my reservations about that scene, Dingus, is I had, I had mentioned something about like I, I mentioned something just now about how is a meal really important or is it just an excuse for blocking, for, for effective blocking uh, to shoot a scene? Right. And I was thinking that about this scene and the kids are all right. But you just now mentioned him being a host, uh, a chef, I mean, and what a huge part of that is, that is, that is to his identity and who he is and how much he knows and how that's a lot of subtext in that scene where they're eating. And another thing, too, that I think uh, this scene really lets them play with because it's a meal is in that bending drinking wine like uh that and the way that it doesn't have to be like a big plot point or anything but just the reaction to as she's having another uh, bottle a glass of wine uh like there's a lot of things you can play with and the movie really took advantage of those Uh, good meal scene also and i just it's it's indicative of how much i loved that movie i just can't help but smile when you talk about him coming to meet the mothers (laughs) <laughs> I just have such warm regard for those two characters uh, as uh, they're, they're a lesbian couple that adopts a couple of children. Uh, Is this the movie with porn in it, lesbian porn? No, it has straight porn. There's references to straight oh, porn. Face. Not interested. <laughs> you, know, you know I don't like the guys in this one. They're too shaved. <laughs> I think it's quoting a line from it. Very good. Uh, all right, so number three, Kids Are All Right. Kelly Wan, you still have not seen Kids Are All Right, so therefore... We're getting you back. No, therefore, we're even for us not having seen My Dinner with Andre. But I have a rule about not seeing movies that are complete sentences, title-wise, <laughs> and you have no rules. That's a good point. Yeah, so good. take that, Aqua Boy. <laughs> All right, my number two uh, favorite meal scene uh, is uh, the assassination of Jesse James. And as I found out last week, I think this was your number one. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So Dingus and I will jointly bring you the real scene from Assassination of Jesse James. Uh, and it's specifically, there's actually a couple of meal scenes in here. There's a funny one. I just remembered this, Dingus. There's a funny one with Paul Schneider. Uh, it's a really dark scene where he and uh, Height, who's played by Jeremy Renner, go to stay at, at Height's uncle's house. And this is an old man married to a younger woman, and Paul Schneider is a notorious ladies' man. So there's that dinner scene where Height has warned uh, Dick Little, the Jeremy, uh, uh, Paul Schneider's character, uh, off of the woman, saying, okay, this is my uncle's wife, don't you hit on her, don't mess with her. Uh, do you remember that dinner scene, Dingus? Yeah. That's a good one, too, that I, yeah. I thought of. But my favorite one, the one that I'm talking about, is uh, a scene where uh, Jesse James is coming to have dinner with them after 
something has happened to Jesse James' nephew, and they don't, they don't, they're trying to hide things from Jesse James, and he's an intimidating character, uh, and there's so much different personal interplay going on during this scene, specifically between Casey Affleck's character and Brad Pitt's character, Jesse James, uh, and another beautiful thing about it, too, is how the other people at the table are aware of this and are trying to not sort of tiptoe around it, uh, and how Sam Rockwell's trying to intercede on, on behalf of Casey Affleck's character by making fun of him to deflect suspicion. Uh, I just love that scene. And it's also, it's just, it, it has this lovely, heartbreaking monologue from, from Casey Affleck, where he basically professes his childhood love for Jesse James uh, and gets shot down. Um, so just like I, Sandra Bullock. Hmm. I uh, don't know what that's a reference to, but oh yeah, <laughs> oh, because she's married to a dude named Lord. <laughs> Did you learn that from People Magazine too? Yeah, <laughs> it's a long read, long time. <laughs> All right, so Dingus, why was this your number one? Um, this this scene, I'm just I'm such a sucker, and I think I said this, I'm such a sucker for. Uh, uncomfortable silences nice. in a scene, and uh, and I feel like should this, listen to podcasts. I, should, I really should. Uh, this this scene really uses that well, and it and um, this is also true of, of the film that inspired this. But but uh, but watching these people deal with this, and and again, this is this is part of the idea of uh, what you were talking about, Tom. Um, how a meal is is. Uh, is the meal used as just blocking, or is is the meal an important part of what we're talking about? And in in a scene where we're just all sitting around on couches, if 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 I get offended or I I feel threatened by you, I can just get up and challenge you, or I can walk out of the room. But if we're sitting at a table and our purpose is to sit there and eat, and the table is there and the food is there and the person who's hosting us is sitting there, the woman who's cooked this food and put it in front of us is also sitting there. Uh, there are other obstacles uh, instead of just a coffee table that I might step over. And I think those are important obstacles because I've been at at uncomfortable meals where you feel like uh, I should I should walk away now or I should say something here, but my host is here and I'm not going to do that. I've been in those situations. The meal changes that feeling. And watching these two characters across this rectangular table regarding each other in all of these different ways that they're regarding each other. I mean, there is there is sort of a dual uh, quality, but there, there's also that, that sense that, that Tom talked about of, of Casey Affleck saying this monologue where his eyes just go from absolute adoration to being just uh, hurt and then being angry. And and that space between them of the table and the food and the meal going on and the other people there and Brad Pitt as Jesse James using the other people at the at the table at the meal as if we're at a meal together and and, and remarking on oh this is really good food and 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 getting Casey Affleck into it there's this atmosphere that's just different from a normal scene and and then when these uncomfortable silences happen and the characters are are strategizing or just thinking over them. Uh, it, it just, it, those seem to have more weight and more reason, and there's there's no reason, or there's no excuse for the, the character to take off. 
Uh, Kelly Wand, have you seen Assassination of Jesse James? No, but I read the book Push by Sapphire that's based on. <laughs> uh, I just want to uh, take a brief option, a brief moment here to, to mention a, an anecdote. I, I was not at this meal. I heard about this meal secondhand. It was a Thanksgiving dinner here in Los Angeles that uh, my cousin went to. And he was there with his girlfriend, and it was it was some show business types. I think like a lawyer and his trophy girlfriend or whatever. And mm. the trophy girlfriend had tried to make a, a turkey, which didn't turn out very well. Uh, and there was obviously some tension there by the time my cousin and his date got to the meal, uh, to the dinner, and, and there had been some drinking. <laughs> and the girlfriend was very upset at her partner's observations about how the turkey turned out. So at one point during the dinner, after they were they were drunk and irate with each other, and there were, there were other guests there, this woman who made the turkey that was criticized went outside, got the garden hose, dragged it back in, and started spraying the table down. <laughs> I just loved that image, and that, that's talking about it, uncomfortable moments at a meal. <laughs> I think that uh, that would take the cake, so to speak. All right, so that's. that's hot. Uh, you know, that is kind of hot, and I kind of want to, like, put that in a movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's great. Uh, all right, hmm. uh, Kelly Wan, what is your number two, if you haven't seen Assassination of Jesse James? What, what's left? What do you got to come up with? Yeah, really, there's no other meals in the movie. <laughs> uh, I just want to reiterate from last week, I see Casey Affleck's on every movie list you've assembled in 2011 so far. What was Paul on? Walker, <laughs> he was on your top ten. Right. Uh, so that's two lists. Paul Walker, no lists yet. Two words, racist. Yeah, but and but I did point out, Kelly Wan, and I just want to remind you, there's a terrible, terrible heist movie called Taken, where he or Takers, where he is the token majority. Like it's uh, he's the, he's the token white dude in here. And during the actual heist scene, Paul Walker saves the day by leaping into an armored car under gunfire. And driving it into a hole, True like story. Green Hornet. <laughs> is there less? Is there less being porn in this movie? Uh, in Takers, I don't recall. I don't Not recall. interested. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what's your number two meal scene? And it does the movie have lesbian porn in it? Yeah, a little bit, but um, it's I'm changing it from last week. Okay. Now no. it's it was my number one, but my number one's so dumb I want to make it a separate thing. So my number two is now, and I have more to say about it this week because Green Hornet ties in. It's Temple of Doom, not the one where you're embarrassing me, you're embarrassing them, and you're farting on me or whatever he says when the Indian village. But the yeah, one, the, the one that I said was my favorite. Yeah. Right, right. Dingus's favorite. It's my you're, second favorite. You're farting on me, or whatever he says. I don't know. <laughs> Well, so there's a couple of meal scenes in Temple of Doom. Dingus, the one you were talking about, is the one where, where Indy sort of shows some cultural sensitivity and reproaches, who is it? Kate Beckinsale. But not Chivalry. Kate uh, Capshaw. Kate Capshaw right. for being insensitive to uh, the, the the hospitality that's being offered. Right. The, this is more food than they'll eat in a week or something. He, he says, uh, you're insulting them and embarrassing me. And that shows, by the way, that, that shows Indiana Jones sort of cultural sensitivity, his sensitivity to third world issues. Uh, that's a very nice clip. <laughs> yeah. He so wasn't was, culturally sensitive to the Nazis. And he wasn't culturally sensitive to the guy with the saber who he shot either, was he? Good, right. Good that point. was culturally insensitive. 
<laughs> you couldn't have cared less about those dates. Hello. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so Kelly Wan, what's the meal scene, however, that got your attention? Oh, my attention, which is very difficult to acquire, um, <laughs> is the scene in the Temple of Doom, but it's the palace above the Doom Temple where they worship Doom, and they're having monkey brains and centipede cocks. Uh, now, and what? Ding, uh, Ding has called you out before. Chilled, chilled monkey brains. I was going to ask you the what dessert. Okay, chilled monkey brains. <laughs> and, um... I real I realize okay the reason it's my favorite is it's why Temple of Doom is good and why the Green Hornet is ham fisted is because it's it's like remember when George Lucas said that the prequels Star Wars prequels if I may introduce those to the conversation <laughs> for once um, he said his defense of them was they're for kids like oh okay that's if, if that it's like Temple of Doom, the monkey brains and the centipede cocks, like those are what kids would really actually want to see instead of Jar Jar. So that's why Temple of Doom is better. Well, you know what, Kelly Wand, it, it does kind of have that gross out thing. That yeah, it's like a at, third grader. Yeah. Like kids do at a Halloween party where it's like, okay, close your eyes and put your hand in, in this bowl. And it's like peeled mm -hmm. grapes. These are eyeballs. And yeah. Put their hand in, in spaghetti. This is like worms. It's like the cinematic realization of that. Uh, sensation of <laughs> that sort of trick uh, with yeah yeah. I also like the scene too because Indy's not eating it and he's ignoring them vomiting and passing out all around him and he's having this like exposition conversation about the history of India while it's all going on while like Kate Beck and Sales like oh this soup's gross but it you know okay I've had poi and then there's <laughs> eyeballs in it. All right, good. So uh, Indiana Jones Temple, in Temple of Doom is uh, Kelly Wan's number two meal scene. I think I could eat an eyeball. That's gross. <laughs> For some kind of ball. What, what is your number two meal scene? We know you're number one, but what's your number two? Um, what did you say? How dare you? All right, my, my number two... Um, I did a quote for you guys last time. There's no need for me to do that because you know which one it is now. Uh, this is... Uh, Give the quote for the listeners. They did not... Yeah, so... And Kelly and I will pretend we won't get it. That's true. I do have a couple uh, people who, who say, I guessed it this time. And I, and at first, I didn't I didn't understand that they were using this as a game. So, yeah. All right, here's my the quote I gave for my number two. Oh, can you cut the fat off there for me? I don't particularly like the fat at all. And the gristle. I don't like the gristle. Uh, 1941. <laughs> yeah, neither Kelly Wan nor I got it. So, Dingus, what is that quote? I from? forgot it since last week. That's how stupid I am. All right, this is a, a 310 to Yuma. Um, it's from 2010, directed by James Mangold. And the, the meal... The meal scene takes place about a third of the way into the film. Um, it's when, uh, when Russell Crowe is a uh, fugitive who's being taken to Yuma, is... Uh, is a guest, an un, uh, a willing guest, at, at Christian Bale's uh, family's house. And um, what I love about the scene is is how sharing them. And I I'm, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but but the but the reason this film makes such a an impact on me, and I watched it several months ago, and it and it wound up on um, on a possibility for this list, is because. I, I love how sitting down to a meal uh, changes your opinion of somebody. Uh, it changes your expectation and changes your preconceptions of them. And the, the family dynamic 
at this particular meal with with Russell Crowe uh, just quietly controlling the scene and uh, Christian Bale seething in it. Um, it's just a beautiful a beautiful family meal um, with this wild card there, and and the the guy at the head of the table, uh, the father has certain things that he has to do. He has to be a good host, no matter how he feels about the person at his table. He has to do those things. He has to get up and cut the man's uh, steak for him, if if that's what's necessary. He has to be accommodating, no matter how he feels, no matter how emasculating that moment is. There are things he has to do. Grace has to be said, no matter how the man at the foot of the table makes fun of that. And... The way the scene develops and the way the mother reacts to this man, I think, is is very specific to the fact that she's sharing a meal with him. And it's important to how Christian Bale feels as the man of the house. And I, I just love the family dynamic at this meal. And it also introduces a... Uh uh, a fork, which comes into play quite dramatically <laughs> later on in the movie. Yes, exactly. Very good. That's going on my three by three of best scenes about forks. <laughs> best Chekhov's forks. <laughs> if, if you show a fork in the first reel, it must be used to kill someone by the third reel. That's right. Tell you have you seen Three Ten to Yuma? No, I don't see movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, then, Kelly what is your number two? Oh no. You already did your number no, we're at no, you guys' number ones now. All right, here we go. My number one, uh, I'm going to give you a quote. Hmm. Uh, I think one. <laughs> and, uh, you had a good one, it. I thought. Did I have a quote? I thought you did. I got it. No. That's how good the quote was. Hey, uh, you had One of you had a quote. How many of them are there? Loads. Isn't that right? Mm. Isn't that, mm-hmm. Anyway, this is a meal scene that starts as one kind of thing and turns into something completely different. And I would have loved... This is why I don't watch trailers, because I could imagine the prospect of sitting down to watch this movie, not knowing what kind of movie it's going to be, and being surprised by what happens. So the beginning... This movie opens with a husband and wife making dinner. Uh, He's found a bottle of wine. He says there's some chocolates that he found. The power seems to be out. They're doing this by candlelight. Uh, They're making pasta. Uh, they're they're fretting about something that's going on with their kids, and they hope their kids are safe. So there's a hint that there's something going on somewhere. Uh, while they are, uh, while he's reassuring her, they start kissing, and then someone it's like it's like their mom or something. Someone walks in on them, and she's like, "Oh, I hope I'm not interrupting." And and it turns out there's a lot of other people in the house, and these other people in the house, it's it becomes clear that they're there for a reason, and they can't leave. Uh, there's a young girl there whose boyfriend is gone, and she's worried about him coming back. And there's the jerk character who insists that she should pull herself to- together and, and realize that he's never coming back. Uh, and then there's a knock on the door, and Robert Carlyle gets up and he opens the door, and there's this fantastic scene where you realize it's daytime outside, mm. and they're barricaded in there. And this is how 28 Weeks Later begins uh, with the creation and the serving of a meal that then turns into a zombie siege, and it is, in my opinion, one of the uh, just most perfect 15 minutes of film as far as making a zombie movie. You can take the the opening 15 minutes of 28 Weeks Later, and already you've got something that is 10 times better than the average zombie movie. Uh, and I, is, I love how that's based around a meal. Go ahead. Plus the zombies have a meal, too. 
The zombie evil does. Well, you know what, Kelly Wan? Now, I'm going to, just because I'm a, 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 a zombie aficionado, I'm going to have mm. to call you out on this. They don't People eat. People infected with a rage virus do not eat you. So I what cannot accept that answer. They don't, and that, they don't, and that's actually the solution to it zombie kills them. Is they starve to death. Uh, hmm. so. so what's the problem? Why is it a, why is it such a problem? <laughs> uh, but I love that meal scene, uh, and and I love just that whole sequence. Um, so there you go. That's my number. Because they're super. They're preparing a meal together, and they're. It seems like a great marriage, and then in ten minutes, it's the worst marriage. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yeah, exactly, uh, and that that betrayal ends up. Basically destroying France. <laughs> yeah. Take that, France. It's just—it's one of the great reveals, as far as I'm concerned. And then, you know, you—you you talked about um, last week. I think about how how great this is. This 15 minutes is is a self-contained thing, and I really like that. Uh, and what's what's doubly great about it is that you're going in to watch. And I remember going into a theater and watching this. You're going in to watch a sequel so it's not like even even as careful as we are about avoiding anything it, it's not like you can avoid knowing what the subject of the movie is you know you're going into the sequel of what's going on but but this lulls you into this weird little world and and just that reveal of daylight it was just i remember just being so shocked so pleasantly shocked by just just the image of daylight coming through that the wall it was just such a great moment and and that all of this is preceded by everything you talked about tom about you know holding up the bottle of wine against the light trying to i don't know what they're if they're trying to figure out if it's red or white or or red wine or looking at the sediment as you said last time just just holding up the wine cooking the food having a family meal whatever this family is we've cobbled together Dealing with the things that we know as an audience member coming to see a sequel are coming, but nevertheless, we're still lulled. And to be able to lull us into a little bit of of comfort or relaxation at this moment is uh, it's just brilliant filmmaking. And, and your whole thing about this being self-contained in this little 15 minutes is great. And it's so like I, just how it ramps up to Robert Carlyle's mm-hmm. decision and his sense of guilt and what he ends up doing and, and how he gets away and looking back over his shoulder at her in the window. Like, all of that stuff is just so well realized. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a character arc. It's in and of itself. Yeah, right. This whole character arc right there. Uh, it's the, the first ominous shot in the movie, too, is that close-up of the food. I, yeah, like, well, do you think that's ominous? It, it, it's weird. Like, it's I like, think why, it are, why are we looking so closely at different things? Mm-hmm. Or, it's it's an unsettling scene because you know something's wrong, and both Catherine McCormick is that her name? Am I screwing up her name? No, I don't remember. Anyway, both Catherine McCormick and Robert Carlyle just have so much gravity to them in this scene. They're so yeah. good, and even the extras who are about to be eaten, well, not even killed. Uh, even the extras in this scene, you watch this scene and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, these are the the lead characters. These are the in-laws, zombies. right? No, so, no, these are going to be the people we're with for the rest of the movie. And right. maybe later they'll die, but you care about them so quickly, uh, and, and it's partly you know you're, you're seeing them interact, you see them relating to each other with a meal. And actually, Dingus, here's an, for for the reason the meal isn't just blocking, 
we know that the girlfriend's boyfriend is missing because oh. a plate of food is handed to her. She puts it over at an empty spot at the table <sighs> beside her instead of eating it. It was given yeah. to her with the understanding this is for you to eat, and with that gesture, that's this is character development, it's great writing, she says mm. no, he's coming back in case he comes back during the meal, I'm putting this plate here. That gesture mm. says so much along with how mm. the other actors respond to it. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. See, right, so you didn't say that last week. Yeah, so go. it was a blessing. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I'm usually not hesitant like this, but is he there? In the oh. in the in break, oh, yeah, I think he is because she get there's a reaction shot of her face, isn't it? I don't there? think so because I well, it. no, he, he wouldn't be there because 28 weeks later, and this has been no end of aggravation to me and Dingus. 28 weeks later does break some important rules of the rage virus and what's going on with what happens with Robert Carlyle's character later in the movie. But I don't think there's any indication that it's actually her boyfriend that has come back to the house. The okay. reason that the infected have come back to the house is because they're chasing the little boy. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's okay. Really um, so. But if they hadn't taken the little boy, he'd still screwed them. Although, how'd he know they were there? Uh, because did he see smoke or something? I don't remember. He might say, I don't know, maybe he uh, just was trying to get into the nearest house. I mean, it's a farmhouse. He's like out in the wilderness. He sees one place that would be shelter. Uh, maybe that movie Sam Worthington's dying thought in Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> the only way it makes sense to me. Is that your number one, Kelly? Yeah, Avatar. Oh, yeah. So, many good. so is it Avatar? What's your number one? No, I'm doing this because I'm awesome. Are you ready? Yep. My number one... Because uh, <laughs> I saw it last week, and I went, oh, yeah, this is my number one for this. Fuck those guys. Uh, is Hannibal, where, um, because when, when Ray Liotta's eating his brain, I was thinking that I would eat a brain, but not mine, because I read in People magazine that my forms of mental illness taste too parsnippy. <laughs> Okay. So that's my that's my number one. Thank you. Good night. You would also eat an eyeball. You, you don't seem to have a lot of a. Uh, you just seem like a very picky eater. Uh, I'd have eaten B. Arthur in her prime. <laughs> uh, so why do you like the scene in Hannibal? Because it's Ray Liotta being served his own brain by Anthony Hopkins, correct? Yeah, because it's classy. <laughs> Right. He has to make it like cops are on the way, and he has just enough time to make brain. And he also feeds it to the kid on the plane later, and the kid likes it. Remember that? Is that true? Hello? Do they run around in Italy a lot? Yeah, the first half's Italy. It's kind of a red herring. Get it? Um... <laughs> That's where the part where nothing happens, and then the second part, the brain happens. All right. That's how it was pitched. So both of your your number two and your number one have involved exposed brains. Right. Yeah, but I like the expression on the monkeys' faces in the in Temple of Doom more than I like Ray Liotta's expression. (laughs) (laughs) More natural. All right, good. And uh, Dingus, your number one, I believe, is Assassination of Jesse James. Oh, what? <sighs> Spoiler. Give us give us a line anyway. Give us a quote, yeah. 
A line from what? Do a from your number one. That'd or be a good joke one. if it was funny. <laughs> Whatever possessed you to go up on the roof in December? <laughs> oh, there's a kite. Wait, wait. What am I saying? There's a cat up there. Tomcat. <laughs> Yowling. Kelly Wan, now you give us a line from the, the meal scene in Assassination of Jesse James. <laughs> He's dead. No. Okay, now he is. What was that? You know what the doctor says? I don't know. I didn't see that movie. I don't see movies with long titles and names. Uh, all right. So those are our three by three choices for best meal scenes. For runners up, uh, one of them that I am fond of is uh, the meal scene in Jaws. Uh, there's ah. a lot of great stuff going on in there with letting wine breathe or not. Uh, and the shark eating Quint. That's a meal. That is a meal, I guess. Yeah. You could Quint's say that's a meal. Uh, what what other runners up did we have? I I did forget this part from last week. Well, Kelly has a has a built-in runners up since he switched out one of his. Oh yeah, meaning of life, dumb. Oh yeah, the waffle thing, right? Okay. Yeah, that's lame. Because you don't know what the meal is. That's a stupid choice. It's more the Thumbs aftermath down. of the meal that's notable, isn't it? And eating Raul, they don't eat Raul on screen much. And in Murder by Death, I forgot what they ate. And Discreet Charms of the Bourgeoisie. Um, I don't think they ever get the food. Is that that one? And in Five Easy Pieces, it's more about what he doesn't eat. It's the ordering of the meal rather than the meal. Right. That's so right. That's, but that's a different list yes. and a different number and a different so, taunt. So save that one. Yeah, for next week. Dingus, what runners-up did you have for, for meal scenes? Uh, one of my runners-up was the alien meal scene. Ah! The part where he eats... Uh, Veronica Cartwright uh, by way of... Who's Tom thinks she looks like again? Uh, Portia... Not Portia de Rossi. Portia Doubleday. Uh, is that That's... her name? The girl from Youth and Revolt? Yeah. Uh, but no, I think Dingus had a different meal scene in, in mind. Oh. You know, when they're all Sketchy. sitting down and having a meal and then they have an unexpected yeah, guest. Mm. Guess who's coming to dinner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, other than the uh, the Temple of Doom scene I referenced earlier where... where you know she's uh, she's being insulting. Uh, I also like I like the Pulp Fiction meal scene where they're talking about bacon and and just having a little. It's not as good as the ones I chose, but I like the little repartee about bacon. Uh, you like it better than the scene with the twelve dollar milkshake <laughs> date scene. That's another three by three. <laughs> Uh, all right, good. So those are our uh, choices for meal scenes. Post your own in the, the forum. We would love to hear what, what you have to offer. Mm. Uh, for next week's 3x3, three three, are you guys ready for this? I am. Mm. I've been ready for it for a week. I mean, I can't wait. What I know Dingus is ready. What I want from you next week are the three best introductions of a character. Because mm. in a good movie, it is going to marshal all the resources that the movie has available, and you will see... The actor, the writer, and their director doing something cool when a character is introduced or revealed or appearing. And let me take one off the table right now that I think is an example of it. Uh, we've been talking about Indiana Jones movies, and the very first Indiana Jones movie, where Harrison Ford, his hat is obscuring his face during the early time, and the way the whip comes out, like that's a great way to unveil a character. I don't know necessarily make a list, but that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Like iconic, memorable character introductions. Uh, and I want your three favorite. So, uh, uh, 
Are you taking Benjamin Button off the table because he ages backwards? So his introduction would be at the end of the movie. Mm, I do not remember his introduction. So if you want to use that one, Kelly Wand, you can. I know Dingus loves that movie. He would love to talk about it with you. I really mm-hmm. would have. But you're, you're not just talking about... Because the two things you referenced about Indy are, are really images that, that enter the character. And last week you um, you talked about sort of like heavy lifting by the script... Uh, that 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 is, presages sort of the character coming in. Does does it matter which way we go on that? No, no, not necessarily. It can be the main character. It can be a character later on. Like the indie one is obviously the very first part of the movie. You, you don't really know who you're looking at necessarily, but it's a great character introduction. Uh, right. Or it could be something later in a movie. It's just okay. where you first meet a character. I just want moments that are really well done and memorable. So, would C-3PO and Phantom Menace be a different introduction from New Hope, Tom? I'm not familiar with those movies. Is that from hmm. 2001, or is that a Tron thing? He, he's talking about fan fiction. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> Erotic fan fiction. Uh, and next week, also join us for, uh, in addition to that 3x3, we will be seeing the latest Peter Weir movie, The Way Back. Uh, we'll be discussing that in spoilerific detail, the synopsis from Kelly Wand. Mm. So, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we apologize for having our, our Season of the Witch podcast cut short last week. That was due to te- technical difficulties. Uh, for the record, I, I think you guys are okay with me saying this. We all didn't care for Season of the Witch, but I think Dingus liked it most. Is that a fair mm-hmm. assessment? Yeah. I called it the avatar of the new millennium. <laughs> Dingus, or, or maybe Dingus hated it the least. How about that? That's That's fair. He's racist. <laughs> uh, I am Tom Chick, and I have been joined by uh, Christian Mar- Mar- Maranzen. Christian Maranzen. Christian Murofsky. <laughs> that uh, that was a Green Hornet reference. Well done. And also uh, Kelly Wand. Body switch movie. Siamese twins. We'll fix it in post. podcast was brought to you by Pamela Recording Software. Pamela, have a recording issue? Fuck you. <laughs> Gentlemen, the reign of Morosky starts tonight. <laughs> <laughs>